Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, because I'm attending a wedding. No, thanks. I already been. Uh, still am. Uh, but uh, a wedding of a friend in Europe. This program was uh, recorded ooh, a couple of days ago, but not not too early to uh, catch the serial apologies by Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. In 2001, uh, when I was a teacher out in Vancouver, I attended an end-of-year gala where the theme was Arabian Nights. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume and put makeup on. I shouldn't have done that. I should have known better, but I didn't. And I'm really sorry. How do you feel about this coming out right now in the campaign? Obviously, I, I regret uh, that I did it. Uh, it's not about timing. It's about having done something that I shouldn't have done. And I'm really sorry I did. Yes, there's an election campaign going on in Canada. Canada, they have elections. And uh, you could say this is opposition research. Three inst- instances in which the Canadian Prime Minister, in his youth, applied, as he said, makeup. Not blusher. Brown face in the uh, instance he just apologized for. And in a couple of other cases... Uh, we're not sure, I don't think, whether it was brown or black or uh, some bronze. How many people apply bronzer in this country? There's a lot of apologies coming. All those people that use copper tone at the beach. But that's, ladies and gentlemen, the apology of the week. Only time for one. Hello, welcome to the show. Tell you he's in love. 
From Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this very special edition of the show. And now... I'm gobsmacked to realize it was a year and a half ago that uh, we had on this program our first conversation with an AI scientist, Gary Marcus, uh, who had then was just at that point was just in the process of completing a book on the subject of uh, his specialty, AI. He's a scientist, a best-selling author, and an entrepreneur. Is is Gary and. Um, he sits in the skeptic's corner when it comes to all the uh, gee wizardry that's uh, surrounded AI in the media over the last, say, decade or millennium. And now that book has appeared uh, on, on your bookstore shelves, as a matter of fact, and uh, in Amazon's Maw. It's called Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. And he's co-author of the book with Ernest Davis, who's a professor of computer science at NYU, Gary, you are now emeritus at NYU, right? I, I am indeed. There was some question about that because I was too young to be emeritus, but cooler heads prevailed, and here I am, Professor Emeritus. All right, well, welcome, welcome to the program. Congratulations on the publication of the book. Thank you. First of all, when we talked, uh, as I say, in March of last year, we were still in the midst, I think, of the gee wizardry, as I describe it, which not only encompassed AI, but seemed to be the default journalistic position towards almost everything technology-wise since uh, the World Wide Web was invented. We've reached clearly now an inflection point when it comes to that, 
the credulity and the um, ad- adulatory default pose has been stripped from the tech world uh, in the face of a lot of things that have been done by Facebook and Google. And similarly, companies in the uh, uh, autonomous vehicle space are now starting to admit with startling regularity, oh, don't be looking for driverless cars anytime soon. Is this because we all have learned a lot since I talked to you last? Uh, Well, I mean, I did tell you so. Um, I, I think in the case of driverless cars in particular, that the results just aren't there. You know, um, there was a line in Wired a, a year ago that was really striking, which was they they looked back to the year before and, and Google said that they would have driverless cars, the drivers would all be gone, they're going to be on the streets a, a year later, and then the Wired headline said a year later, the safety drivers are still there and the bravado is gone. Mm. Um, so, I mean, things have changed because ultimately they don't have the results. Nobody has a real driverless car on the road that you can actually trust without a safety driver. Sometimes you have to read six paragraphs down in the press release to see that there is a safety driver still there. But this level five driverless car that we were promised where there wouldn't be a safety driver, the car would just go by itself, which is what Waymo is trying to build. Um, we just can't do it in a safe and reliable way. We can get it to work for you know 10,000 miles at a shot, but that's not enough to make it useful. And, and we can get it to work on on straightaway driving in the middle of the Arizona desert, which is sort of the, the way most of them have been tested. I think I've seen- right. they, they can do the easy thing, but you're not going to see them driving around Manhattan anytime soon. And if they say it's New York City, it won't really be Manhattan. And if they say it's <laughs> India, it's certainly not really going to be Mumbai. So you knew this. You, you correctly say that you told us so uh, a year and a half ago. On your very show, indeed. Um, yes. So what's changed in the world? The world just caught up with you, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the lack of results and people are finally starting to notice. And I'll say that that's not across the board, but it's in some places. So people have noticed for sure in the driverless cars. Some people may have noticed that they were promised chatbots and they never emerged. Some people may not have noticed they haven't emerged yet. And there's still a lot of people talking a big game in AI saying, well, we just need more data. We need bigger computers. Um, Just earlier this year, for example, OpenAI, which was founded by Elon Musk in part, said, oh, we've got this great new AI system. It's so good. It's so dangerous. We're not going to release it. Which is quite quite a lot of hype and totally unmerited. You quote in your book a, a Toyota vice president uh, for automated driving research saying, taking me from Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, to Logan Airport with no driver in any Boston weather or traffic condition, that might not be in my lifetime. And there's a tunnel that goes, as I was just reminded, being in Cambridge, um, going to Logan. There's a tunnel for most of the way there. Really ought to be not that hard. But the truth is, yeah, I mean, people at Toyota and, and some other places are realizing it's just a really hard problem. And, and let me say a word about what makes it so hard. You already alluded to it. it. It's what we call the outlier problem or the long tail problem. It's really easy to get the main cases using a lot of statistical data, which is the basic way that people have been approaching these things. But there's never enough data for the outlier cases. So all is well and good when you drive through that tunnel in ordinary conditions. But if there's a leak and there's some water and things change or whatever it is that you don't have a lot of data for, and you have a system that doesn't have any general understanding of how the world works and it's just looking to draw boxes around things that it already knows about, it's just not going to work. The machine won't know that the tunnel was part of the big dig that cost $14 billion because Boston <laughs> is so corrupt, right? 
Exactly. I mean, AlphaGo doesn't even know that when it's playing Go that people usually play on a board with stones. And so, yeah, the system is not going to know anything about the big dig. So you and your co-author say the bitter truth is that for now, the vast majority of dollars invested in AI are going towards solutions that are brittle, cryptic, and too unreliable to be used in high-stakes problems. That's right. It's fine for advertising. If if you <laughs> recommend a product and, you know... You don't really like that toothpaste, it's okay. You wasted three dollars. If you liked one of my books and you don't like the other and it told you you'd like the other, so be it. It's not a big deal. But if you're talking about like a robot that would take care of your grandfather and it puts your grandfather in bed correctly nine times out of ten and drops him on the tenth time, that's just not a good enough solution. Well, it depends right? on how you feel about your grandfather. Well, <laughs> we won't go there. All right, I don't have one, so I, I can safely uh, safely say that. You you speak uh, in 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 the opening pages you you and your co-author about the robustness gap. What's the robustness gap? It's easy to make something that works some of the time. It's hard mm-hmm. to make something that works most of the time or all of the time. In fact, one of the things that happened to me or that I made happen since I spoke to you last is I founded an AI company called Robust dot AI, mm-hmm. and it's kind of kind of a dig at most of what's going on, which is kind of unrobust AI. It's kind of like demo AI. I can show you in principle that I can drive on the highway. Well, that's different from showing that I can in reality drive in city streets. Um, you know, we have all these things like photo taggers that work most of the time and nobody cares. But for mission critical jobs, you need AI that can deal with unusual circumstances like the light is different or there's a fire or you know any of a million things that an ordinary human can cope with and have some idea how to deal with things. And if you just have things that are brittle, they break down when the test that they're being um, examined on is different from the thing they studied on. You have a problem. Another way to put it is the current AI basically teaches to the test. And so if the test is what you expect, you're cool. But if the test was not quite what you're expecting, you're not. My my favorite example of this in the book is there was a really kind of famous in the field um, bit of software by DeepMind called Deep Reinforcement Learning. And what it did um, or the particular application of it was to play Atari games. And when uh, Google bought them for about $600 million, it was primarily for this piece of software. And it would play Atari game, play them better than humans. But the catch is it didn't really learn that much beyond the specific screens that it was playing those things on. So somebody um, at a company called Vicarious took this system, made it play Breakout, and there it was playing at superhuman levels. And then they moved the paddle up three pixels, and suddenly the thing couldn't even hit the ball anymore. They didn't really understand what a ball is, what a paddle is, what a set of bricks is. It just memorized what I should do in these particular circumstances. And it's a little better than memorization, but there's no real depth to it. So you're brittle, and that's exactly what teaching the test is about. It's like, I learned that level of breakout, but I don't really learn what breakout is all about. Well, isn't it kind of appropriate that we're teaching machines the same way we're teaching kids, teaching to the test? Well, I mean, it's sad that we, we teach uh, a lot of people in that way. The, the best education, of course, isn't that way. I mean, you know, a good graduate school teaches people that there are many hypotheses consistent with any particular data and that you have to think for yourself and recognize how other people will think about things and so forth. But a bad, you know, uh, elementary school would be just like teaching history as a set of facts without giving people any tools to think critically about it. That sounds like our elementary schools. Uh, okay, let's get to the nuts and bolts of this. Your critique focuses on the system of that AI currently uses 
to uh, have machines, quote, learn, unquote, which is deep learning. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, what's really transformed AI, I think both for better and worse, is a technique called deep learning, um, which really got popular in 2012. The underpinnings of it actually go back to the 50s. And people were experimenting a lot with precursors to it in the 1980s and early 90s when I was in grad school. But it wasn't very practical then. They're so-called neural networks. They're vaguely like the brain, but not that that much. But they take a little inspiration from the brain. Um, and they're very good at recognizing patterns. And there are a lot of problems in AI that uh, hinge around just a recognizing a pattern. So Go, playing game Go or Chastrec revolves around that or labeling a photograph. Um, and so it's good because we've made progress on that area. But it's bad because the old um, saying about to a man who has a hammer, everything is a nail. So mm -hmm. people are trying to use this technique not just for things that involve patterns, but also for things that involve language or judgment or reasoning. So a driverless car you know, requires a bunch of judgment and reasoning that these systems aren't very good at. And the reason that Siri can understand one sentence but not a conversation is because Understanding conversation involves reasoning and interrelating with other pieces of knowledge and so forth. And deep learning is just not very good at that. Just because you can recognize a picture or something like that doesn't mean that you have kind of general understanding of the world. But the way you describe it, it can't even faultlessly uh, recognize a picture. If a few, as you made, mentioned before, a few pixels are changed, the stop sign is not recognized as a stop sign anymore. That's right. I mean, you can actually fool one of these systems by putting stickers on a stop sign and it'll think it's a speed limit. They, they really recognize things like texture more than they recognize objects. So um, in the book, for example, we give an uh, illustration of a, a three-dimensional baseball that somebody made and put foam on top of it. Mm -hmm. And the system thinks it's an espresso because it picks up on the foam there and doesn't understand you know, that a baseball is spherical and that an espresso is not really going to be spherical and so forth. There's not a lot of depth to the perception. Nor will a, a, an espresso normally have horse-eyed stitches. Exactly. It, it doesn't <laughs> know those properties. Another example we gave is um, a school bus that's turned on its side on, mm -hmm. on a snowy road. And the system says snowplow because the snowy road kind of has the texture that a lot of the pictures that it memorized um, had a, um, would accompany a snowplow. So again, there's no depth to it. It doesn't know what a snowplow is for or that you know certain pieces are essential. And so it can't say, hey, that school bus doesn't have the plow part. It's probably not a plow. Like It, it just doesn't do the reasoning that people do. So some people say deep learning is good at object recognition, but if you're more careful about it, it's actually good at image recognition. It can say, this image looks like these other images in the database. But to actually understand an object is, is a deeper level than, than just that. Um, the systems are pretty fallible even there. And that's their sweet spot. I mean, when you get out to understanding um, a conversation, that's way outside their sweet spot. They just can't do it. Well, in a, in a traffic situation, the world is full of objects of different vectors, different speeds, different sizes, different reliabilities, all of that, right? Yeah, I, I used to, um, until very recently, live in Manhattan and occasionally drive a or ride, I should say, a unicycle. And I was terrified <laughs> that people would start having, um, you know, machine learning driven driverless cars in Manhattan because unicycles weren't going to be in their data set. Yeah. So, like, they're trained on bicycles. They're trained on people who are walking. Heaven help you if you're walking with an umbrella and that's not in the training set. Mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, on a 29-inch unicycle and that's not in the data set, you're in trouble. So are you saying that these these uh, machines are trained on images and don't understand that the images represent objects? 
Well, with the typical thing is you have someone essentially in a modern day sweatshop, um, like an Amazon Mechanical Turk kind of thing, look at images and they will write labels on the things that they see. But they can only do so many examples. And typically, because data is expensive, the people commissioning the data are going to focus on a small number of categories. So they'll say, like, draw a box around every bicycle that you see in each frame of this video. So it's like a capture. It, yeah. It, I mean, capture data may even, for all I know, be used in, in making driverless cars. And then Waymo, which is part of Alphabet, which is the company that owns Google, just released a driverless car data set. And you can see exactly what they labeled. And you know, they, they label lots of cars and, and lots of people walking by, but they don't necessarily label anything that's above street level, for example. So lots of things are ignored. And depending on the size of the data set, there may never be a skateboarder there. There may never be a unicyclist there. Or, I don't know, two guys walking, carrying a, a, a door or something like that. There might just not be a data set. How many breeds of dogs? And yeah, I mean, it might have data about big dogs, but not little dogs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no data about the Chihuahua and then the Chihuahua walks down the street and it might get crushed because um, the sensors don't quite pick it up and it's not in the training set. That's exactly the, the kind of problem that I think we should be worried about. What's blind data dredging? Uh, well, I mean, I made that phrase, but the, the <laughs> idea is that, that you're, you're just doing um, statistical analysis. You're just collecting more data. You're sifting through for correlation after correlation after correlation but without any um, prior understanding of the world that you're trying to have the computer deal with. So you are, if we're taking the driverless car example, blind data dredging would be doing all this labeling without having concepts of what vehicles are, what people are, mm. where they intend to go, um, what a street actually is for, that it conveys people moving along. And the driverless cars don't know that kind of stuff. They, they, I mean, it's it's like AlphaGo doesn't know that um, that there is a board with stones that people usually play this game on. It just knows something very narrow, very specific. Um, these driverless car algorithms don't have a kind of conceptual framework about what driving is about. And you know, most of the time when you drive, that doesn't matter for you either. You know, mostly you drive by reflex and you start spacing out and whatever. But if you encounter something unusual like a police officer with a hand lettered sign, then you know, your your deliberative faculties, what Kahneman would call system two, kick in and you're like, well, let me read the sign and I'll figure out, you know, what's going on in this situation. I was in California once. I guess this is a common thing, but I don't spend a lot of time in California. And the police officer started zigzagging across the road <laughs> on the highway. And it was like, what is that? Um, police officer drunk or, you know, I had different theories. And eventually I figured out that the police officers were slowing us all down. Um, so that uh, one of the officers could pick up a piece of wood or something like that um, that, that was on the road. Um, but I was able to reason through as a human being, thinking like, the police officer must have a reason for this, um, must be trying to signal something to me, even though, or to us, even though I've not seen this signal before, and I was able to work it out. A driverless car wouldn't be able to do the same thing. And in fact, one of the mistakes we've seen most often is, is Teslas five times in the last year mm -hmm. have driven into emergency vehicles that were stopped on the side of the road, three fire trucks, um, I think a police car, and, and most recently a tow truck. Like, doesn't have a concept that there might be an emergency vehicle that might be stopped in order to help someone. You you use a phrase uh, six decades into uh, the history of this uh, field, uh, AI is functionally illiterate. It, it can't read. It's true. I mean, I don't know if it's a phrase or just a fact. Um, 
Uh, I mean, it was a sentence to correctly describe the truth. AI has been around that long. And although there are some reading tests on which the systems can do well, um, they're very limited. So they, they're good at kind of underlining text. If, if you gave it the California driver's manual and then say, you know, how far do you need to be from a stop sign, it might be able to underline the answer because it's kind of given there in the driver's manual. But if, if you have one of these things read even a children's story, you'll find that in children's stories, we don't spell everything out. And, and you have to make a lot of inferences about who did what to whom and why they were doing it, um, and what they had in their pockets or what they were doing with the thing you gave them um, that we make automatically. Like if, if you read it, a uh, story in which every single inference is spelled out, you will go out of your mind. It's the most <laughs> tedious thing in the universe. But those are the only kinds of things that current AI systems could actually read, the ones where everything is spelled out. They can't fill in the gaps for what's not spelled out. Like we give an example of a children's story by Laura Ingalls Wilder. A child finds a lost wallet and some ask somebody, is it their wallet? And they slap their hand against their pocket. It is just one example. And well, why do they do that? Well, because you know, people have wallets in their pockets and wallets take space. And so if you slap your hand against pocket, you can d discern whether or not the wallet is likely to be there. So you fill in all these steps. But if Laura Ingalls Wilder spelled all that out in a children's story, so next, you know, M Mr. Smith put his hand against the wallet, in or I mean, the pocket, in order to see whether there was a wallet there, found a, um, a gap of, of 0 0.01 millimeters and concluded that his wallet could not, I mean, like, mm -hmm. who's going to read that? But machines, you know, are lost without that. It sounded mesmerizing when you just, you know, read it from memory, though. <laughs> um, the little tedious house on the prairie. <laughs> the the question I have, as as you spell out how this works so far uh, on the current system of deep learning, is machines are trained on these. Uh, sets of images which are drawn from the internet that's i think i correctly perceive that you make the connection that one of the great leaps in the history of ai was the availability of the public internet and and the world of images that it uh makes available absolutely we wouldn't be even i mean i make fun of where we are now but we wouldn't even be there without the internet because the current algorithms that we use as distinct from some future ones we might imagine are very heavily dependent on large quantities of data. The internet is the place to go get them. Now, we may have a, a future generation of AI that's much more clever and can use much less data because it understands the world much better in the way that children do. Um, like, children don't need this much data in order to learn basic skills. Um, but the current AI needs a lot of data, and the internet's kind of the only way to get that data. Well, that brings up a question to me, because you, you make a reference in your book to a practice known as Google bombing, where uh, people at one point tried to uh, uh, dominate or manipulate search results uh, by bombarding Google with a number of uh, bogus uh, references. If you're trying to get me to mention Rick Santorum on the air... No, no I'm not. I'm not. And that's, that's so 2010. Uh, no, but I'm, I'm asking, if, as this proceeds and AI continues down this path, isn't it... I mean, obviously, not all the concepts in the world have been translated into data packages for AI. So there are many to go, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. And that would suggest that people with uh, a, an interest in a certain perception of objects or businesses or substances that they have a, a commercial interest in could try to 
Google bomb the image library of Google. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's a whole field now, if that's the right word. Um, industry is maybe the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, of what people are calling adversarial attacks on it, on AI, mm-hmm. which is to say they're trying to fool AI in different ways. Um, that's distinct from the kind of cybersecurity issues, which we should also wor- worry about and maybe want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one example we already talked about um, for this is fooling a system into thinking a stop sign is a speed limit by putting a couple stickers on it. Mm-hmm. So um, there's been a lot of work for about four or five years doing this. When it first came out, um, some of the prominent people in machine learning were like, oh, this will never happen in the real world. It's just a marginal case. You show it in the lab. But it turns out that this is a pretty serious problem. These systems, because there's no depth there, are very vulnerable. I mean, like, they don't understand that a stop sign is supposed to have a certain number of sides. Um, and so they're just recognizing based on things like color. Mm-hmm. If the lighting is different and um, it, you know, the color is different, it may not be able to compensate for it. Um, on the other hand, it, it doesn't know that you know you need some version of red relative to some kind of lighting. It, it just doesn't have a kind of basic essential knowledge. Or um, you know, you would recognize that a couch that was missing its legs might not be a good couch to sit on, but it has no basis um, to think that the stability of the couch is something that matters for the couch. And so, um, people are trying to fool these systems, and they're going to do that more and more. There are examples where it's been done in medicine. I can't quite remember the details. Um, there, are, there are examples all over the place, and, and we will see more and more of it. Somebody was telling me about a driverless car that was fooled, I wish I could remember the details, um, by some kid just putting his feet on the road, like like sitting on the curb, putting his mm-hmm. foot in the road. The driverless car would stop, and then I think eventually the kid realized this and was like kind of toying with the car, and we'll see more and more of the- that yeah i'm I'm thinking not so much of of research uh activity but i'm thinking of of um more interested parties so for example let's take a concept like policeman or cop and if you wanted uh an ai system to have a certain view of policemen you could google bomb a series of uh, millions of images of cops treating uh, civilian people uh, brutally. And Absolutely. I mean, if you can control the data sources, and since some of the sources are just public data mm-hmm. sources, you can manipulate um, the ideas, so to speak, that these machines have. I mean, we give some less deliberate examples in the book. Like, if you just do a Google search for a professor, Google image search for a professor, you mostly get white guys, even mm-hmm. though statistically speaking, professors are no longer mostly white guys. But the systems have no way to distinguish between older pictures and new pictures, no concept that older pictures might give a bias sample relative to new pictures, can't distinguish between fictional characters and real characters and so forth. So Can't distinguish statist- between tenured and adjunct. Can't distinguish between tenured and adjunct and professor and maritime. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, they, they just have no concept really what they're looking at um instead they take what a statistician would call a convenience sample and that is not a compliment right when you say convenience sample it's basically saying you're lazy about your data mm-hmm. um rather than being systematic and anytime you use like google image search to evaluate something you're getting a convenience sample and more or less that's true if you're using google search as well i mean you're getting the things that people happen to label you're not necessarily getting the highest quality data and google's aware of this they do they put some effort into this so you know they're going to value the New York Times more than some totally random blog, but there really are problems with the quality of the data that goes in. And Google as a system can't do what, say, a smart 
graduate student ought to be able to do um, in terms of evaluating the quality of sources and, and um, trying to figure out what's factual and what's just advertising. Because there's no system at, at Google that can really tell the difference, as far as I know, between kind of like product placement and, and you know a legitimate review or a anything of that. You know, level of analysis. Well, most people can't do that. Uh, we've we've dealt so far with your critique, you you and your co-authors' critique of the current state of AI. Where would you like to go from here? I think that the most important problem for people to work on, and we don't have an answer, but we try to pinpoint what the issues are, what the challenges are, so that some future graduate students can do better. We think the most important problem is really putting general abstract knowledge into the machines that we have. So there was an older tradition of AI, some people call it good old-fashioned artificial intelligence, or GoFi, um, that was very concerned with how to put human knowledge in machine-interpretable form. And the trend now is to not do that at all, to just let the machines learn everything for themselves. But as we've talked about, that leads to a lot of weaknesses. And so we're looking for some kind of marriage where the sophistication and being able to put sentences essentially into machine understandable form in something like the way that programming languages work has to be alongside of the capacity to learn from a large quantity of data. So the mistake that the earlier generations of AI made is they hand-coded everything which took an enormous amount of effort and sort of it was sort of Sisyphean. Nobody ever got enough knowledge. So we need to learn some of that knowledge, and that's what the, good, the current systems are good for. But they're not good at learning the right kind of knowledge. They're good at learning kind of trivial stuff about correlations between snow plows and, and the, the roads around them, which is not really what you need. We need a synthesis where you can actually just directly input knowledge like snow plows have plows on them. The plows are for plowing snow. We need, we need to be able to learn how to say that kind of stuff in language that machines understand so they can then combine it with the empirical experience that they get from looking at a lot of pictures or reading a lot of web pages or even going out in the real world. When when we're teaching kids, young kids, and you have what, still two of them, right? Still two of them. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. hope it will remain that way. Okay. You teach them this is like this and th these are not like that, right? That's one of the major... Yeah, they, I mean, I, I do some of that. Mostly they learn on their own. I mean, some of what I teach them is explicit, and they can certainly understand that. Like, we can play a game, and I can say, okay, well, we were playing with two people. This actually happened yesterday. Now we're going to play with three people. What should we do about that? Okay, let's make this rule. And then they can you know, totally understand explicit knowledge. Um, they're also really good at inventing their own challenges. So, you know, when they're little, that would be like, can I walk on this thin, narrow ledge? <laughs> and at the ed age that they're now, which is five and six and a half, um, they're always inventing new games for themselves. Like, what if you had a superpower and you could, you know, look through walls or whatever? And so mm. they're challenging themselves by posing puzzles about worlds that are different from the world that they live in. You know, the technical term for that would be counterfactual worlds, I right. suppose, or po possible worlds. And um, they do a lot of imagination in order to think through different kinds of scenarios. Um, that itself requires both explicit knowledge, like they can just say, you know, here are the rules, and a lot of implicit knowledge. So, like, how would the world be if it was just like the world that we have right now, except that you could look through the wall so you wouldn't fall through the ceiling or, you know, lots of other things wouldn't change. And they have to know which ones would change and which ones wouldn't. And I never told them that, but they observe something about, you know, what's stable in the world and so forth. We need Maybe their mom told them. Well, their mom tells them a lot, but I don't think that. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, one of these things is not like the other is, is sort of a cliche of how... 
uh, children learn to discriminate uh, among s- somewhat similar objects. And in talking to friends about your your book uh, or, or about you, not personally about you, but your work, I I would always say, well, you can teach a machine to recognize a dog, and you can teach a machine to recognize a cat, but you can't ask it what's the difference between dogs and cats. They don't machines don't know that those are two different but similar things, right? Yeah, most most machines don't even know what a species is. <laughs> and, you know, you can get them to memorize stuff like cats meow, but that doesn't mean they really have a context for thinking about it. So, like, you know that dogs have dog babies and cats have cat babies. And if I told you there was another animal, which there actually is, called a Garanuck, then you could guess that Garanucks have Garanuck babies because you have a theory about biology, which is that animals give birth to babies of their own of species. Of the kind, yeah. And so you have a lot of general knowledge like that that you can then apply to specific cases. That's exactly the kind of knowledge that current machines just don't have. So they will they will never recognize that dogs and cats, although each has four things we've told them are legs, uh, are similar to each other but distinct from each other and distinct from tables. Yeah, I mean, they could recognize the difference between a dog and a table, but they, they don't understand what's going on there. And so an example along those lines is... If they haven't seen a three-legged dog, they would have a lot of trouble understanding the notion that you could have a dog that maybe lost its leg in mm. an accident. Mm-hmm. That's a richer concept um, that they can represent, whereas you know a three-year-old can learn to do that. And you could even have a, a guy who lives in a log cabin only sees three-legged dogs most of the time because he's got two three-legged dogs by some kind of coincidence. That doesn't mean the guy is going to think that all dogs in the world have three legs, which would be a function of the statistics Hmm. of the environment that he's in. Um, That person would realize that this is an exception, realize that in general they have four legs, that there are certain processes that lead a dog to have three legs or two legs or even no, or that some science fiction process could maybe add an extra pair and you could have a dog with six legs. So we can reason about these things. We have very flexible minds um, in terms of understanding that you can have something that then undergoes, for example, a particular change. Or you can say, if I put a dog in a costume and made it look like a cat, would it still be a dog or would it turn into a cat? Mm-hmm. And even five-year-olds know that, no, just because they have a cat costume doesn't mean that you're not still a dog. And one of these systems you know, really couldn't tell that. It wouldn't be able to reason about that. It would just say cat. Um, or if it was a silhouette, it might even say person. Like it, it just doesn't understand. The guy in the in the cabin sounds like an evil dude to me. But what about <laughs> what about persistence? Uh, something kids learn very early with peekaboo games. Just because something is not in the in their field of vision for a moment, they learn through that game that it's still there and it'll reappear. Uh, a, a, an autonomous vehicle really would need to know that, wouldn't it? Well, so, I mean, people have programmed into autonomous vehicles some degree of tracking things over time. In that specific case, so they'll, they'll, they'll hard code an algorithm just to track a person over time, so um, or, or a vehicle over time, to to some extent. Um, nobody has a kind of general way to do that. So, like, you you would like a robot to understand all of the objects in its environment, keep track of all of them, and so forth. And just putting deep learning in there doesn't get you any of the way there. You've got to do a lot of more sophisticated programming, thinking about what kinds of objects you want to pay attention to and building databases of them and their locations and and how those change over time and so forth. And our abilities to do this is somewhat limited at the moment. So you're pointing to a a different system that would encode in a machine uh, understandable way all these uh, understandings and inferences and common sense uh, elements of human thinking right yeah i mean one of the terms that i like from 
cognitive psychology, although the term gets used a lot of different ways, is, is a model or a cognitive model. So you build inside your head a model of what's happening in a given moment. So if you read a story, for example, you start to imagine the characters and the relationships um, including things you haven't directly observed. Same thing if you watch a movie or, or whatever. You, and so you, even if not everything is spelled out, you're like, well, what is the relationship between this character and that character? Why are they trying to do this? And you can think of that stuff as a cognitive model as opposed to just learning correlations about like which pixels were on the screen at what time. Um, and I, I think having that kind of cognitive model is absolutely pivotal to getting a new generation of AI that's more sophisticated than the current generation. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask three more questions that have been dogging me since I first read the book, uh, and I didn't get to ask you the last time you were on the program. Given your very cogent analysis of the, the, the what one might describe as the simple-mindedness of the current AI in trying to, I presume, get to the ability to think like a human and given all the problems that you elucidate between where we are now and being able to think like a human why are we setting the uh, goal so high at this point why you don't know, i had a conversation with danny kahneman on stage last week um nobel lawyer who talks about system one and system two reasoning whatever mm -hmm. um and the conclusion that we came to is that beating humans is a low bar but that we haven't got <laughs> it there yet right but there are lower bars I mean, I, I I don't know if you're a dog owner. I'm a, a, a dog fancier. I'm a dog uh, person, and I watch my dog, and she makes decisions. Uh, I, I talked about this with an animal behaviorist one day, uh, why this tennis ball is today's ball and no other will do. That's a decision you can watch her make. And if she mm -hmm. loses that ball, it's the the wrong ball will not suffice. So there's there's some mechanism going on there. We could start with trying to uh, think like a dog and work up from that like evolution did. I, absolutely. And I, I think you know, different people working in AI have different goals. And I think a lot of people would be happy with what we used to at my college call dognition. <laughs> um, you know, dognition would be great. Um, you did portmanteaus uh, in college? Um, well, I didn't make that one up. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, two two of my undergrad mentors were actually experts in dognition. Mm. Um, mo most famously, Ray Coppinger, who wrote a really great book about um, dog cognition. Um, I think it would be great if you know in my lifetime we could really get to something as rich as dognition. The particular things that I'm interested in mostly revolve around language and the kind of flexible reasoning that human beings do, and dogs don't do a lot of that. Mm -hmm. um, it partly depends, you know, from a practical standpoint, what do you want your robots or AI systems to do? So um, I don't think dognition is enough for driving cars, and I don't think it's enough for doing elder care. Um, but you could have an elder care companion that was like a dog. Obviously, that could be um, of some value, and, you know, it could be much more self-maintaining than a real dog could be. So, I mean, you know, there, there are different applications for which different things um, might be useful. And there are lots of examples of very interesting intelligence in the animal world. Humans don't have a lock on it, and AIs don't have to be just like humans. Yeah, so, thinking like a dolphin, thinking like an elephant, thinking like a, a, a macaque. I mean, all of these things are interesting. Um, the particular applications that I tend to think about mostly involve like conversations with people and, um, you know, I have, I have this new company that's working on robots and I, I would like um, to have robots on work sites that are safe or robots in the home that are safe. And those things happen to require something that's at least a little bit like human intelligence. Um, it doesn't have to be identical to human intelligence, but you want 
a robot that's in an open-ended human environment to understand why humans are doing what they're doing, and that requires you know fairly the high level of sophistication. Um, so you know, for those applications, I think you need something more. Okay. Um, how do machines know when they get something right? The common paradigm right now is supervised learning, and you just you give the the machine, let's say, a one if it's correct or a zero if it's incorrect, and it just tries again. Tries, you know. So you, you give it a picture of a collie, and it says schnauzer, and you you basically say you're wrong, and it tries again. Um, you know, it's just matching a character um, or a number in the same way that it decides. Did you press the E key or the R key? And as far as the operating system is concerned it's it's basically a trivial thing of do this does this bit pattern match that bit of pattern that I've, I've programmed into this into the system so th there's no way of building incentives into this system aside from number matching. Well, what you can do is you can build in a, a utility function or a loss function people use different terms saying i want the machine to maximize this so in the atari game example i gave you earlier the system is trying to maximize score it actually has um, access to the score that was displayed on the screen and it's just trying to do whatever it can basically by trial and error so more sophisticated version of trial and error to get the highest score that it can and you can program a computer to maximize the score or you could program it to do as many different things as possible and write a little algorithm to keep track of each thing and decide how different they are so in that way there's been some progress people are getting pretty good at getting computers to maximize some things but not others i'll give you an example of one we'd like to do but can't really yet which is we would like to have a robot um maximize how safe it makes people or alternatively minimize um to use asimov's formulation the amount of harm that it does right mm -hmm. um and the problem there is not that we can't tell a computer you know make the value of this variable low we can do that but we don't know how to actually encode harm in the machine so we can recognize a picture of a dog and label a lot of pictures of dog but, but nobody knows how to take the same paradigm and apply it to something more abstract it's like i can't really show you a picture of democracy i can show you pictures of people living in democracy i can't really show you a picture of harm and these systems essentially traffic in, in pictures. And the thing about harm is it really depends on the circumstances. It's not a picture, not a photograph. I mean, of course, I can show you, you know, some pictures of people that have, you know, had their heads blown off and say mm -hmm. that's harm. But there's lots of other much more subtle um, kinds of harm where, where no photograph is going to do it. And we don't have the language to talk to machines to explain like, the notion of harm or malice or accident or, you know, this is benign, this is deliberate. We, we don't have that language yet. And part of what we're pushing for in this book is to give machines enough common sense so that we can describe those things in terms of some base set of categories about space and time and causality, um, intention and so forth. If you have that basic level you might be able to bootstrap to these more sophisticated concepts but you're not going to get there just from pixels and labels you have a, an example in your book of a, a machine uh, given the goal and humans are always are going to be the ones giving these these ai systems the goals uh given a goal of of winning a certain game and the machine figured out the easiest way was uh if it wasn't going to win it was just going to pause the game indefinitely <laughs> Yeah, it's like the old, old thing in war games. The only way to win, win nuclear war is not to play. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could say that's a clever solution for the machine in that situation. But there, there is a serious problem of a kind of gap between what our goals are and what machines do, given that we don't spell a lot of things out. So we have a picture in the book 
where some, I mean, it's fanciful, hypothetical, but somebody says, put away everything in the living room. And then they, <laughs> they come back to see that they're, that the robot has cut their couch into pieces and stuck it in the closet. And, you know, we can't expect that people are going to explain to their domestic robots, don't cut up the furniture, right? It has to come from the factory knowing that furniture is of value to people and at least it should check before destroying it. Um, <laughs> and if the machines are too literal and don't have a general fund of human knowledge, then there's no reason to expect them not to do a lot of stuff like that. And, and I, I want to, in a couple minutes, get to cybersecurity and the 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 threat that AI poses in the way it's being used, let's say, by Amazon to build a world of surveillance. But I, before that, one other little basic question. Human uh, cognition is, uh, we're an electrochemical system, right? So there's electrical activity in the brain, but the but there are neurotransmitters that are chemicals. And we are now discovering that microbes in the gut can produce melatonin, serotonin, dopamine, most of the major neurotransmitters. So are, is, is artificial intelligence as we know it trying to replicate only half of human cognition, the electrical half, without the influence of the chemical half, and not to mention hormones and other things that are affecting the brain? Probably so. I don't know if that's a bad thing. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's not yet knowable. So, you know, some of the things that we do as humans don't really need to be replicated. So we, we have terrible memories, and there's no reason to make a machine have a bad memory. Wait, we have, a, we, we have terrible what? <laughs> memories. I, oh. I forgot what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and there's no reason to make machines have similarly bad memories. So, like, the way that people can't remember where they park because they parked every day um, in the same lot but in different places. Mm -hmm. They can't delete the old memory traces, essentially. Machines have something called garbage collection, and they can um, have last input buffers. These are much better solutions than humans have. So we don't have to do everything the way people do. Or, you know, if you think about arithmetic, machines don't have problems carrying the one. They just get that right and you know, do it in binary instead of decimal, but they're fine. Um, and people make mistakes on that all the time. Um, so the fact that we have evolved to do cognition in a particular way doesn't mean that machines should replicate it. But my view is that we should be looking at humans for, and not just humans, but as you say, dolphins, elephants, and so forth, um, for inspiration, because there are some things that right now humans still do much better than machines, right? I mean, 60 years of exponential growth in transistors and computation and so forth has not led to a machine that can be flexible enough to understand a conversation. So we should ask the question, how is a person flexible enough that they can hold a conversation? What can we learn from that to make our AI smarter? In the example you give of, of elder care, though, um, it's arguable that uh, empathy uh, is part of the... the uh, the neurotransmitter uh, part of the brain, and not the electrical part of the brain. And if you if you have the one but not the other, you'll 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 have to constantly remind the machine, "Don't hurt this guy." <laughs> Your granddad, right? I guess there's a couple of things. One one is the neuroscience is more complex than that, so you almost always have the electrical with the chemical. You yeah, can't yeah. Make the, the neat divide, but I, I realize you're speaking metaphorical. Um, the odd thing is that. Machines that were at some level like sociopaths could actually be really useful. And what I mean by that, even though it sounds scary, is you have to have the machine appear to be empathetic. It doesn't have to be genuinely empathetic. And the best example of that is a teddy bear. A teddy bear you know, looks warm and friendly and can actually make a child feel better. You know, if you have kids, this is an amazing thing about stuffed animals. I mean, and, I mean, there's studies that show that monkeys like stuffed animals too. 
you know, warm and cuddly can make you feel better even if there's no genuine empathy there. So if your um, attempt to, or the, your goal is, is to make a machine that feels empathetic, you might not need to have any neurotransmitters involved in that as long as you understand what it is that people need out of that interaction. Some people won't like that. You're describing, um, you're describing most politicians. <laughs> the ones that appear empathetic. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Um, okay, cybersecurity. Um, AI is being used today by uh, many companies. Uh, we had a discussion with Shoshana Zuboff, who authored a book called about surveillance capitalism earlier this year. Uh, and Amazon, among others, Amazon notably, putting uh, cameras everywhere in your home, in the street, with a ring. Um, uh, so facial recognition being added to that, uh, all of it being gathered together in, uh, I imagine it is, it's by AI, uh, to create databases of people in your community. Um, should we be worried about this? Should Should we basically be saying, you know, maybe AI is smart enough and any smarter and it just becomes, uh, it fuels. Look, if, if, if TRW can't keep your credit history straight, why, do you, why would anybody think that their data that's being uploaded with cameras is, is infinitely safe? And it amazes me that people will put cameras into their bedrooms. People do it all the time. They do it on their phone and then they do it on things like, I think it was called Alexa Show, which is like an alarm clock with a surveillance camera and people voluntarily put them in their bedrooms. Like you just have to understand that some people are going to um, be looking at your data to make sure that the machine learning works properly and understands your sentences. And oh. you know, stories came out about that. Um, and you know, Amazon has been extremely good at, at data security, um, much better than a lot of places, but even Amazon is not, you know, in principle and vulnerable. You could still have a disgruntled employee with a password or something like that. Cybersecurity is really not a solved problem, partly because there are weaknesses with humans, partly because um, like microprocessors have glitches in them that you know eventually they get ironed out, but not in the first generation. So there are all kinds of vulnerabilities, and there's a huge cat and mouse game, and huge incentives for people to keep playing that game. And yeah, so, you're also like, we don't have a solution there. You're also leaving out the fact that some companies make a lot of money by uh, having all this data and making it available to third parties. That's right. I mean, there's huge incentives, whether yeah. whether it's you know stealing people's credit histories in order to get credit cards or, or whatever, or blackmail. Or selling a, ads against it. I mean, there was a, a Black Mirror episode along these lines. There's all, all kinds of possibilities. Let me ask you one, other, one more question on this line. Uh, Amazon, Google, uh, Apple, Facebook all say, hey, we need to record these conversations to improve the language recognition of our systems, right? I mean, that might be true given the technology that they're using, and that goes back to the kind of data, data greediness of the system. But why don't the, they? Why can't they just record hours of broadcast drama and comedy and talk shows? Uh, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, the, the answer turns out to be that the more, and I alluded to this before, the more different the data are that you're trained on, from the data that you're tested on, the weaker these systems are. So, I mean, it, it goes back to that um, teach to the test problem. If you teach them only on network news broadcasters, then people like you who have, you know, great diction might actually be understandable. But people like me who don't um, speak on the radio for a living aren't going to be understood. But by then teach, train them on radio talk shows where ordinary people call in. 
sports talk yeah, shows. Yeah, but it's a, I mean, you, you could get some ways for that. Um, one of Amazon's great insights was actually to record a lot of conversations in a lot of different rooms with different kinds of noisy conditions and so forth. You kind of brute force the problem by collecting as much data that is as close to the real world as you can. And, you know, like broadcast radio is, is fine, but like, you know, the phones change the sound of the signal and, and okay. so forth. It's, so it's not going to be the same as in the home. Re record Amazon employees in the break room. Yeah, they're still not going to talk in the same way. I mean, they probably do some of that. Um, <laughs> but it, it goes back to like the depth of what's there. If your system is fundamentally shallow and doesn't really understand language, you can make up for that by having a lot of data um, across every kind of conceivable circumstance. So you substitute an exponentially large amount of data for a sort of single understanding. You might actually know the real version of the story, but I, I've heard a story where I think the movie was Marathon Man, and it's maybe Lawrence Olivier and, and Dustin Hoffman. Mm -hmm. Dustin Hoffman does a bunch of laps um, so that he can look all sweaty and tired. And, and Lawrence Olivier says, dear boy, just act. Um, <laughs> well, you haven't at least ruled it out as being apocryphal. Anyway, no. So, so, so the story goes. I love um, it too much. That happened. Yeah, great. Um, we, we will assume it to be true yeah. um, for the sake of argument. Um, I feel the same way about current AI. Like, if you actually understood language, you could just listen, dear boy. But since you don't, you're going to have to keep running a lot of laps in people's homes, and you're going to have to collect that data. Hmm. Gary, Marcus, uh, obviously we could talk like this for quite a while, but you've, we been, have. <laughs> you've been very generous <laughs> with your time. And I must mention again the name of the book just out. It's called Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. Trust I guess is what you're trying to get at with with these systems. Uh, that, that, that's what it's all about. Is right now there's kind of a gap. AI has leaped forward, you know, far past where it is before, but not to the point where we can actually trust it. And yet we are. We are trusting it in our cars and in our homes and so forth. And so right now there, there's there's this scary moment in history where we trust the AI and we shouldn't. And one possibility is to stop trusting it, but the genie's out of the box. So the other possibility is we're going to have to make it better. Gary Marcus, the man who put a genie in a box. Uh, <laughs> are you, You're in Vancouver today, right? I, I am indeed. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, being at the other end of the line. Good luck with the book. We'll be uh, watching for you elsewhere, and I, uh, as a personal friend, hope to see you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. Hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> A tip of the Le Show Chapeau to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans. And uh, thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead for help with today's broadcast. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.